it's worth looking at our money stories and what we grow up with. And as with any stories, you know, say, well, is, is this serving me? Do I truly believe this? Um, is there a way that I need to rewrite this to be more productive with my life as it exists now? Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Laura Vanderkam, who's a writer, an author, and a speaker, and she helps people spend more time on what matters and less on what doesn't. Now, Laura, you have written multiple books on time management and productivity, including your most recent book, Tranquility by Tuesday, which, shameless self-promotion, you and I have already talked about, and I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes so people can listen to that conversation. You've also written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Fortune, to name a small select few, and you also have a TED Talk on how to gain control of your free time, and it's been viewed by more than 10 million people. However, despite all of that, the reason that you and I are actually talking again today is we're going more than a decade back in the archives because I'm fascinated by your book, All the Money in the World, What the Happiest People Know About Wealth. So as I mentioned off the record before, it means a ton to me that you're here to publicize a decades-old book and maybe sell four new copies. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about money. Uh, even if it's been a while since I wrote a book about it, I, I still love the topic and I'm always down for a conversation on it. Yeah. And I, I love talking about money when I don't actually have to talk about money. And what I mean by that is if it comes down to numbers on a spreadsheet, percentages, asset allocations, like that stuff just makes my head spin. But I love understanding the psychology and the emotion behind money and our behaviors. And some of the the big existential questions that I'm going to at least to make an attempt to try and answer today are defining the word enough. How do we define what enough actually means for us, which is something that you write about a lot. 
um, this concept of whether or not money can actually make us happier. And you literally say word for word, this book is about how to buy happiness. Big assertion. And also discussing what are some of the mindsets or the approaches to money that we might need to reevaluate when we approach the concept of money. But there's actually an area that I want to start. And it's we're going to get to all of those. But where I want to start really has nothing to do with this book specifically or your other book specifically. It's my hypothesis that I believe that there is a tremendous amount of intersection between time management and money management. And very, 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 very few people are at the intersection of both. And you're one of them. So throughout your entire career of writing about both of these, would you agree that there's a lot of intersection and similarities between time and money management? And if so, how are they similar? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of overlaps between the two in that both are scarce resources that we would do well to optimize, right? That we are trying to employ these scarce resources in the best way possible in order to achieve the lives we want. Now, there are obvious differences between the two as well in that every human being has 24 hours in a day. Every human being has 168 hours in a week, whereas people have vastly different amounts of monetary resources, of course. And so one of the things that I found you know, somewhat challenging to write about money from that perspective is because people do have such different amounts. So the opportunity cost for someone of doing X rather than Y is entirely different from all of us with time, right? Like, you know, we have 24 hours in a day. Once they're gone, they're gone. All the money in the world cannot buy you a second back. And if Jeff Bezos decides to spend an hour on something, it's He's lost as much time as you and I spending an hour on something. Whereas, you know, Jeff Bezos throwing a million dollars into something, there's no real opportunity cost. That doesn't in any way lessen his ability to do anything. Whereas, I'm just guessing, maybe your podcast is more successful than mine, but it's, you know, it would be a little bit I would bit guess more. it probably isn't, but thank you. <laughs> it, it would be a little bit more meaningful for you or me to devote a million dollars to something. So, you know, that those are, are the differences. But be that as it may. I do believe that a lot of people listening to this podcast, a lot of people who might be, you know, reading a book about how to buy happiness with money, um, probably have enough resources that they can start approaching it from a perspective of more abundance, which is also how I encourage people to approach time. Like if we're constantly thinking, I don't have enough time, I, I don't have time to do anything, then you don't really think about what you do with your time. I mean, why bother? You don't have any. So, you know, you do whatever is right in front of you. And it's the same thing with time, with money. When we assume that we are always operating from this scarcity mindset, we don't think about how we might, you know, use money as a tool to build the lives we want. Whereas if we believe that we have enough and also that we are capable of bringing in even more into our lives if we wish to, um, then we start making very different choices. Yeah, there, there's a whole lot that I want to dig into, the first of which being that I agree that when it comes to one of the similarities, it's the abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality, where in all the conversations that I've had with my coaching clients and my students over the years with time, it's always I have to find it. Where is it? I've lost it. It's never how do I either create it, which, of course, we can't create more time per se, but there are ways that we can rearrange our lives and our priorities and our values to create it. 
And language is very important when it's a matter of, oh, I couldn't find the time. You change the language to, I chose not to prioritize it, world of difference. To me, you can ascribe almost all the same mindsets in the language to money. Well, I don't have the money versus like, you know, I, you talk about this idea of what you can't afford, can you earn more? And one of the things that I love about your take on this, which is very similar to uh, some of my other kind of financial mentors or just business mentors in general, one of which... Uh, the most influential being uh, Ramit Sethi. He's you know now famous for saying it's not just about cutting lattes, right? You can't just cut. You have to look at what you can earn and what your earning potential is just beyond scarcity, scarcity, spend less, spend less, spend less, right? So uh, I'm, w- one of the, the questions that you brought up that to be honest, even I'm having a hard time answering and it kind of goes, it's going to help us get closer to how we define the word enough. One of the questions that you posed, and I want to learn more about the results that you got, because similar to your um, your contemporary Gretchen Rubin, you love talking to your audience and getting survey data and compiling that into results. And you asked the following question. If you had all the money in the world, not literally, but all that you ever wanted, what would you change about your life? Even I have a hard time answering this question. What are some of the answers that you found in compiling this data? And why do I have such a hard time answering this? Yeah, I mean... It's well, I think it's because probably in many cases, many of us have built lives that we're pretty happy with. Um, and, and there may be certain things that you'd change, but many of those changes might not lend themselves to money per se. Right. And, and so this is where it comes back to time, because even the people who are you know, fabulously wealthy because they still have 24 hours in a day, because they still have a temporal body, because they have relationships with people that involve a certain amount of time and effort. There are certain things that even money itself cannot actually change. Like all the money in the world, you still have to exercise. No one else can do that for you. Uh, All the money in the world, you cannot pay somebody to sleep for you. You can't pay somebody to take on the responsibility of being a loving spouse or partner, right? I mean, you know, one would hope you wouldn't do that. Right? <laughs> we see we see that a lot with the billionaires. That yeah, that's a problem yeah, yeah, that you can't fix with happen, money. But it's not necessarily a wise choice if you would like a, you know, long-term satisfying, uh, hopefully monogamous relationship with somebody. So, you know, with that in mind, it, like you can take your spouse out for better date nights than a normal person, but you are still having to invest that time and effort in building the relationship. So it's a challenging question. I, and I, I really feel like many of the, the things that more money would do for me are I have to think twice about. Right. Because I started going like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'd like a vacation house somewhere ritzy. And then I'm like, but then I'd be spending my time dealing with it. And I like, well, I'd have to hire people to manage the house. And I'm like, but then I'm managing those people. (laughs) It just it keeps coming back to time being this limited thing. Um, And so I think we're always trying to trade off between the resources we have and where we put our time. And once you have enough resources that a lot of stuff you know, you're certainly not suffering in any way, shape or form. You can get a lot of the stuff that you would, you know, like or need on a daily basis. Um, It becomes a much more challenging question. Yeah, it's it's a very challenging question. And uh, I think that it's it would be a lot easier for somebody to answer if they hated everything about their life. And I think the at least what I found from my own personal experience, and you may have found it, like you said, from some of your responses, 
the happier, or let, let me take away the word happy, the more satisfied slash fulfilled you are with your life choices, I think the harder that becomes. The first thing that I thought of immediately was personal chef, like done. I just, I want somebody to cook my food, to make my food, because I have two very important values. I value my health, but I value my time with my family. And me having to cook and deal with food management and groceries and everything else takes time away from my family. So I've been able to tell the story, not, ooh, I would like to be able to spend on this. It's here's how my spending is in alignment with my values. And I feel like the way that you teach time management is the way that I teach time and financial management, which is asking the question, is how I spend my time and or how I spend my money in alignment with my values? And I feel like this question is really a values question more than anything. It is. And the upside is when you identify something specific like that, that you would change, you quickly see that it does not take all the money in the world to hire somebody to cook for you. Um, you know, there's just a question of like, okay, if I was going to pay somebody to do this for a couple meals a week, what would that look like? And, you know, many people come into a very a solution that somebody comes for, I don't know, a couple hours on Monday, cooks a couple meals, puts them in the fridge. You heat them up on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and there you go. I mean, you are having healthy meals through the week. You are not doing it. It is a limited amount of money. So, you know, that is something that people then see like, okay, if that is a actual pain point in my life, I could solve that with a lot less than all the money in the world. Um, and, and then, you know, start looking, is there anything else that you might wish to do? And, and how can I command the resources that are at my disposal to make that happen? So given all of that, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this assertion where you say that this book is about how to buy happiness. And I want to talk about a study that has talked about ad nauseum in the intersection of finances and money and happiness and fulfillment, which is that Daniel Kahneman study back from 2010, where everybody kind of lands on the $75,000 a year number. But if we dig a little bit deeper into it, and there's much more info in the book itself, but essentially it says that of more than 450,000 U.S. residents, so large sample size, that the effects of income on individuals and their life evaluations that shows no satisfaction once you get well over $120,000 a year. And most of these measures, once you get past about $75,000 a year, it all levels out. So what have you found as far as like this idea of once you hit a certain number, money's not going to make you happy? Because I think there are some people that argue against that, and I agree with our arguments. But what's your argument that past 75 or 120, whatever the magic number is for you, money no longer equals happiness or fulfillment? Yeah, I mean, I think that it wouldn't automatically because many people don't spend money in ways that increase the happiness in their lives. Um, and and so that's that's why you might not see that, right? Like if you, there's some evidence that people spend about the same percentage of their income on housing and transportation, regardless of what they make, right? So regardless of, you, you think like, I need to spend a third of my income on housing and, you know, whether you're earning $100,000 a year, you know, 50, a million, whatever, like that people think they should spend a third on, on housing. Um, and, and more housing does not automatically make people happier and partly because it's more to maintain. And nobody really likes doing yard work or housework or they're, you know, hiring people to do it, but it's still, there's always that, that inefficiency is like that, you know, involved with managing that and all, you know, so it's, it's not automatic that people would have more money and spend it on ways that actually increases their day-to-day -day happiness. Um, that said, I mean, there, 
the way it was, the study I read it is that, you know, sort of hour by hour experienced happiness wasn't rising, but overall life satisfaction did keep going up um, with income as it rises. And the problem is, with a big survey, even if you have a lot of people, is that there aren't that many very wealthy people who are going to be answering that survey, right? Um, so, you know, do we really even know? I don't know. Did he do a look at people with net worth north of, let's say, $20 million and ask them, are you happy with your life? What did they answer? I don't know. It's hard to do that survey because there aren't that many people. Um, so, you know, you can't yeah. necessarily do it. I think that probably the most important data point that would help me better assess this is where in Maslow's hierarchy of needs were the people that were uh, responding to the survey, which is another way of saying what you did, which is if I'm barely getting by in a, you know, a studio apartment trying to raise three kids all in the same room and I can't do anything other than be in survival mode, then $75,000 a year can literally change your entire life or even going from 75 to 120. But there, there's so much more nuance. And I've experienced this myself, having grown up not poor, but kind of lower middle class in a very rural area of northern Wisconsin to by the time I was 24 years old, making more money than my parents ever made in any given year. And experiencing like there's it's just like with the, the studies that you read about people that win the lottery at first, it's like euphoric, like there are things that I have access to that I would never have had access to in my entire life. But then it all kind of levels out and you kind of go back to reaching a baseline level of happiness. So I'm trying to, to dig deeper into your assertion that money can buy happiness, given there's a lot of data that suggests the opposite. Well, it's, people do have sort of a baseline level of happiness. And then any human has some chunk that you can affect, right? And I think there's different measurements and different ways people have looked at this. But some is just your baseline. You are who you are. Um, some is circumstance, like if you've just been, you know, left by your partner, lost your job, you know, you're injured your back, like, yeah, things are going to feel worse than than if everything's going hunky dory. Um, but then past that, there's also certain, you know, practices and certain habits people have that then affect their day to day moods. So, you know, that's questions of like, are you getting enough sleep? Are you moving your body? Are you putting healthy things into your body versus, you know, things that, things that aren't? Um, are you spending time with friends? Are you, in, you know, spending time devoting time to a hobby, like something that is not just work or caring for family members. It's something that, you know, you're doing for the sheer sake of the pleasure of doing it. Um, and, and, you know, adopting those sorts of habits can make, life feel very different. Now, most of those don't necessarily require additional resources to do. Sometimes having more resources can make it easier to do it. Like, you know, if your favorite thing on earth is to go scuba diving, obviously it helps to have more money so you can fly off to Fiji versus if you are trying to scuba dive in like a, you know, reservoir lake up here in Pennsylvania, that may be a little bit less exciting. But, you know, you're still scuba diving, I guess. So, I, you know, it, it, that's where the resources come in. Like, are you spending them on getting together with friends and other pro-social activities? Are you spending them on building time into your life for a hobby? Are you spending your resources in ways of reducing pain points? I mean, you know, one thing for me that I always talk about is um, getting some childcare on the weekends 
because I have a lot of children. I have five children and they are all spread out in age. So if I'm going to something for the older kids and I want to like watch a game and not be chasing a toddler around on the sidelines, hey, you know, pay somebody to take care of the toddler for a couple hours so I can go actually pay attention and enjoy myself and enjoy this time with my big kids. Um, you know, that that is a way to invest resources in solving a pain point. Yeah, and that's where I think the the, the nuance of how we define happiness versus fulfillment versus satisfaction versus well-being, that's where there's so much more nuance because happiness is such an ethereal word to define. Let's go back to the the idea of like uh, training, uh, for example, where you said like, you know, paying for exercise, training resources. So for me, for example, I decided about, it's been about five and a half years now. Um, I was in pretty poor health, could have won, could have easily won dad bod competitions. And I watched television with my kids one day watching American Ninja Warrior. And I said, yep, I'm going to do that. That's for me. And it cost me a lot of money to be able to do the training, get the trainers, go to the classes. Like there's travel involved. There's been a lot of cost that's gone towards that. Would I say that where I am now versus six years ago, I'm significantly happier? Maybe not. I've, I've kind of say I have the same general baseline level of happiness and my personality hasn't changed, but my well-being is leaps and bounds forwards because I was able to spend that money on the training and the classes and the travel and building the network, et cetera, et cetera, versus, well, I just want to sit around and do nothing and save money and scrimp, right? It, it cost me a good amount of money to do this. Like at least proportionally, it's a pretty embarrassingly large amount of money that I've dedicated to everything necessary to achieve this goal. So it hasn't changed happiness, but level of fulfillment and well-being skyrocketed, which to me continues to bring the conversation back to how do you define your spending in alignment with your values? To me, it always becomes a value-driven conversation. So if we go back to your example of I want to hire somebody to watch the toddler for a couple of hours, what value is that in alignment for you? If we're going to really distill it, what is your value that you're paying to enhance in your life? Um, Connection with my kids. Which isn't that funny that, uh, you know, paying for childcare is actually about uh -huh. creating a connection with the kids. But when you have a larger family, the little ones, by the nature of being little, will always take more time and attention. And so if you want to devote some of that time and attention to building a relationship with older children, then you need to have somebody else taking care of the little ones. And, you know, there's various ways to do it. I mean, people trade off with their spouses or other relatives or whatever, but if that's, you know, not going to happen or both spouses want to be with the big kids or whatever, then, then you know, it comes down to, to resources. So yeah, that's where that value comes in. Yeah, so that, that's an example of where if I, let's say that you were just going to show me a spreadsheet budget and the budget line item said childcare on Saturdays for three hours, one could look at that and say it's the opposite of family value, but you go into the story of your money, it is actually enhancing the value of family. And you, with five kids, you have to make trade-offs of where does my attention go at any given time? I've only got two, and I can understand that. With five, can't even comprehend. One of the things that I learned about having kids is that everything we were taught about math is wrong. Because <laughs> when I went from one kid to two, it's not twice as hard. You're not, it's one plus one does not equal two. One plus one equals like eight. You're like, oh my God, this is so much harder. I can't even comprehend. Is, is there a point at which two versus three versus four versus five, you're like, it's just a bunch of kids? Or do you feel that there was an increase every time? Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't think there's an increase every time. I mean, I feel like, you know, by the time you're, infants are always hard. So it's hard to answer that question because you're adding an infant, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if you were adding like a four-year-old, maybe that would be entirely different. Um, but because you, you know, generally most people are adding a baby and babies are hard, it feels harder, but it's not because 
you know, the number of kids is harder. It's because you just added a baby. Um, yeah. I would say that zero to one is the lifestyle change. Everything else is just <laughs> adding adding more people. So little, you know, you start manage once you can juggle a couple balls, like throwing another ball in there, it's not a different order of magnitude. It's just a little bit of a tweak on the same skill. Sure. Uh, and I can understand that in most respects. There's one, and I literally wrote this in all caps in the margins of the book. I don't have the page in front of me and I don't remember the exact stats, but it was about this idea that you alluded to a little bit earlier of like proportionality. Right. Like when your your household budget is 30 to 50 percent of expenses, et cetera. And you were talking about groceries and all caps in the margins. Yeah. But how much do you spend on groceries? Because you've got five kids. That's an example of where you have to learn, I would guess, start to make certain sacrifices based on your values, because if you value having five kids, my guess is you've got a pretty high grocery bill. Well, we do, but we have a relatively low going out to eat bill because it's just total chaos if you attempt to bring <laughs> seven people to a restaurant. Like nobody even wants to seat you. And then it's not pleasant because the little one's running around <laughs> getting into mm -hmm. trouble. So, um, yes, we eat at home all the time, but uh, that probably evens out then with, you know, somebody who's eating out a lot more um, and cooking at home. So, yeah, I mean, no, my grocery bill is not small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I only have two, but uh, both of them are now, they're not technically both teenagers, but they're both teenagers and yeah. they both eat like teenagers. And every month I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is just the food bill. And plus in Los Angeles, food costs are astronomically high. Um, so the, if there's anything that I'm a grumpy old man about, it's, it costs how much for a gallon of milk? Like, <laughs> but that, that's a whole other conversation. But again, it's, it's about spending in alignment with values. And if we're going to tie it back to that, I look at what we spend on food, but if it were a matter of just scrimping, I could probably cut our budget in half and we could eat real crap. We could eat real processed garbage, but because I know that my spending is in alignment with values, I have to find room in the budget to make sure that my kids aren't eating all garbage. They yep. eat some garbage because they're kids. Because they're kids. But I, <laughs> I try to offer them those options, but when I'm looking at line item budgets, it isn't just as simple as I got to cut, 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 especially given that at least as of recording this, and I'm hoping that people can listen to this for years, but it's been a really tough year economically, especially for those that work in the entertainment industry. Like it's been an entire year of strikes, no work, huge amount of unemployment. But when you're looking at a line item budget, trying to figure out what are all the things I can cut, if you're not clear about what your values are, it's a lot harder to figure out how to rearrange the numbers. Absolutely. So having said that, what I want to dig into a little bit further now is this idea of scrimping versus uh, generating more income. Right. Because this is an area where I feel that so many of the financial pundits and the the money bloggers and everyone else, like it's all about the coupons and, oh, you can get four point three eight percent instead of four point one percent on this, you know, high yield savings account. And to me, focusing your time and energy so much more on your earnings potential, that's the lever that yields results. So just kind of paraphrase or talked about talk, talk a little bit more and and summarize what you learned from digging into people that literally have made an obsession over coupons and saving, saving, saving. Yeah, the coupon thing is funny. I feel, I feel like it's become a little bit less of a thing now that so much shopping is online and, you know, just people are, are using like apps and stores instead of actually clipping the coupons. I think a lot of the couponing game has changed since back in the day when I first started studying this. But I mean, there were some real like scams going on with people like duplicating coupons and whatever else, but uh, people going dumpster diving to get 
multiple copies of the same circular so they could go into a store with, you know, 40 coupons for Cheerios or certain stores didn't have limits on how many you could use or whatever. I mean, it's it. And then people would stockpile, right? Like, because obviously you can't eat 40 boxes of Cheerios in a small amount of time. So you have this stockpile. Um, and then the question is, well, what's going on with the stockpile? Because <laughs> if it is not properly stored, or if you never shop from the stockpile, then your grocery budget will not be nearly as low as one might imagine. But I think what it all comes down to is there's, it's the scarcity mindset. It's the idea that your income is what it is. And I have certainly seen it put that way, that most people can't change their income substantially. Ergo, you, you know, have to focus on cutting. And there are certainly you know, things in anybody's budget that probably could be cut. I'm sure many of us are spending things, spending amounts of money on things that we don't really care about. I've certainly had that experience and I go through my credit card bill and I'm like, yeah, I probably didn't need that. I didn't want that. Or if it's a recurring fee, I might, you know, go get that nudge to call and cancel it. But that said, um, I don't think it's a given that people can't earn more. And especially as the economy sort of changes, the number of extra things that are available for people to do um, is you know, even since I wrote this book, I, I was, when I wrote this book, like, you know, you want to earn extra money, you probably need to figure out a way to start a business. Right. And, and it could be a low, low cost sort of business. I mean, you can like freelance, right. You could, you know, do whatever. But now of course there's all the gig apps that, you know, people start driving for Uber or, you know, doing Instacart. Like you truly do not need a business model to just, if you need some extra money and you happen to have some extra time on a particular day, like you can turn time into money in a way that was just not available 15 years ago. Um, so with that, it is certainly possible for people to at least slightly increase their income. Um, and so then it becomes more a question of, well, what would bring me more satisfaction? Would I prefer to, you know, drive for Uber for four hours on the weekend and then, you know, not have to buy store brand cereal? <laughs> or would I prefer to, not drive and do whatever else I was going to do on my weekend um, in this time that I've had, but I don't want to devote to that. And then I'm going to choose the store brand groceries because that's my trade-off. But it becomes more of a choice as opposed to like, well, the only thing I can do is cut my grocery budget. The only thing I can do um, is, is is cut back. And even with the cutting back though, I, I thought it was it because it's only the variable expenses that people then look at in a lot of financial literature. Uh, you know, and and so it's like, oh, well, shop around for your car insurance and use coupons on your groceries or, you know, cancel Netflix as, as opposed to like, okay, move to a different house. Like, yes, it's terrible for like you having to do it once, but then it's done. And if you move somewhere cheaper, all of a sudden this space is opened up in your budget that, you know, you don't necessarily have to eat rice and beans for, for years in order to get out of this financial problem. You take the hit once and then you adjust, you know, as we talked about, human beings kind of go back to their happiness set point in many ways. So it yeah. might be worth looking at that as an idea. Just take one big hit as opposed to little cuts over and over and over again. 
My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, I actually ran into this relatively recently because over the course of this year, uh, income for my business has been shrinking because all of the students that are in my program that are in my industry, nobody's working. So I've gotten the email 150 times, really looking forward to working with you and joining the program when I've got a job again. Nobody's worked for an entire year. So the first thought is, all right, let's look at the budget. What are all the things we can cut? Oh, I've got a $10 subscription here, a $15 subscription there. And I totaled up literally all the subscriptions, all the fees, all the SaaS, you know, all the, the different pieces of the software. Like when you're running a podcast in an online education business, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of digital duct tape to hold it all together behind the scenes that nobody ever sees, right? So I looked at that number and then I looked at the amount that I spent on people. And I'm like, I mean, it's not even a comparison, like over 80% of the money that I spend on any given month is the people in my business, not the software. So I can cut $17 a month here and $40 a month here, barely moves the needle. I lose one person on the team and that more than covers every single subscription that I've got, which then again, I'm going to bring it back to values. If what I valued short term was saving money, it's easy. You, unfortunately, I have to lay you off. But the value is building a team and building a culture that will survive long term, which means I have to solve the problem differently, which, like we said, is how can I generate more income in a more creative way because I value the team and I want to build the team, not I need to cut and scrimp. Otherwise, I would just cancel a bunch of services. It just doesn't move the needle at all. And in the, the personal world, it feels exactly the same way. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up that I think is so, so important is asking Asking the questions that we're all asking in a very different way through the lens of opportunity cost. So the, the example that everybody brings up 
count up how much you spend on Starbucks and you spend on your lattes and it's, you know, $4 after ever. Let's make the math easy, right? You spend uh, four or five bucks every afternoon to get your afternoon coffee five days a week. Let's say it's a hundred dollars a month in Starbucks. How irresponsible, right? So you take that hundred dollars a month over the course of 30 years, you put it in an IRA or you put it in an investment account, compound interest, yada, yada, yada. Look what you've got. Nobody's paying attention to the opportunity cost of losing what that latte in the afternoon does for you for the quality of your life. So speak more to this idea of opportunity cost when we look at what we're not spending. Yeah, I mean, that's the, obviously the the financial trope of, of you know, give, your, give up your Starbucks and, and you'll have whatever hundreds of thousands of dollars in 40 years. I, I actually just wrote a blog post this week on this, um, which, yeah, if you are spending... $1,500 a year on, on Starbucks and put it away at 7% interest. Uh, and you keep doing this every year for 40 years, you have $322,000. And I guess at that point, you can spend that on lattes <laughs> if you want. Although a latte will probably cost $20 by that point and 322000 will be worth a lot less in 40 years. So you can, you know, pick your poison there. But to me, what the coffee shop is representing because I go to Starbucks probably four times a week at this point, and it's not for my caffeine needs at all. Um, I make my coffee at home in the morning, and I'm perfectly happy with it. I like it better than anyone else's coffee. But I have teenagers who love Starbucks. And if I take my 16-year-old, and he drives now, but I'm with him, um, you know, we drive to Starbucks together, we pick it up, drive home. That's 30 minutes that he is spending with mom, that he is talking with mom, telling mom about the day, about what's going on in his life. Um, and that strikes me as a pretty good use of Starbucks money. Um, I, we often pick up one for uh, his little sister who doesn't really come with us, but she likes it. And then she'll sit at the kitchen table and talk with me while she's drinking it. So that's another one. You know, I get double kid time out of the Starbucks experience. So I feel like, you know, is a good relationship with my kids going to be worth more than $322,000 in 40 years? I'd say, yeah. Yeah. I, and I would agree with that. And the, the way that I want to help people reframe this, it's a very simple question, but it can really change the way you look at something. And the way I would frame it in this specific instance, and it sounds so paradoxical and it almost doesn't make sense. And maybe you can help me refine this if necessary. But if somebody says, imagine what I can save by not spending on Starbucks, my question would be, what is it costing you to save all of that money? And be like, I don't understand. What do you mean? What is it costing? Like the fees or like, no, what does it actually cost you to save all of this money? And it sounds like your answer is it costs me, at least in part, building a quality relationship with my kids. Now the equation's easy. Like you just said, is $322,000 worth costing me to a certain respect the, the relationship and the quality of the relationship I can build with my kids? That to me makes it so much easier to know whether or not this is something I would spend money on or not. And, and I mean, you know, to be honest, it's not like Starbucks is standing between me and living on the streets here, too. I mean, I am saving for my future. I have plenty of money saved for the future. I guess I could save an extra 322000 on top of it. But uh, that's where, you know, it, it coming into the idea of trying to earn enough that these aren't hard choices, right? That I don't have to make a hard choice. I can say, yeah, okay, I do want this Starbucks. And because it's helping me build this relationship with my teenage children, I am also 
saving for the future too, because there's enough for both. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the reasons I always encourage people to think about how they might bring in money into their lives and to be serious about their earning capacity is that it does mean that the trade-offs aren't necessarily quite so stark um, as, you know, time with kids or money for retirement. Like, whoa, that doesn't sound like a good trade-off. How about, how about we get both? And, and you mm-hmm. know, if you have enough money in your life, then yeah, you can have both. Yeah. And I want to get back to the the earning side of it because there's a lot of really good mindsets and ideas about the earning side of it. But I'm going to push that aside for a second because what we've done in this one conversation is gone from the micro to the macro, which is we're talking about lattes and all of a sudden you're throwing around this word that's incredibly hard to define enough. And like you said, there's a big difference between I have no money saved for the future. I'm not putting anything into the college funds. We can barely afford X, Y, and Z. So $322,000 in 40 years could mean a lot. But you've defined what enough is and you've got a financial system that's making sure that all of the boxes that you define as enough are checked. So then the equation of $322,000 in 40 years versus Starbucks with my kids now, it's a very different equation. So how for you personally, have you defined what enough is? Because there isn't a definition, it's different for everybody, but how do we define it for ourselves? So enough money to me means that you don't have to think about money first. And uh, that is, you know, you can see how that plays out in all kinds of ways. Do I want to do this job as opposed to what does it pay? Do I want to take this trip as opposed to, you know, what does it cost? Um, Do I want to go to Starbucks versus do I have the, you know, $17 or whatever it is that I'm spending on the the kids' drinks uh, to to do it? Um, So... Yeah, I, I think I think that's what I define as enough. And and it doesn't have to be, you know, all the money in the world. I think you can get to a place where you have enough that you don't have to think about money first. Um, well before we're reaching the, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos level of, of wealth. Yeah, and we can see what money has done for his happiness, at least yeah, well, you know, from what we can see in the outside, right? Or the I mean, quality might, of marriage. He might be happy. I think he's, yeah. he's probably pretty happy, but you know. Yeah, but they're, they're, it, yeah, we all have various people have various disasters that happen in their lives in one way or another. But, yeah. Um, that may or may not have anything to do with how much how much money you can have. You can be dirt poor and have various disasters happen mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and then there are plenty of studies that have shown that the levels of happiness are often much, much higher across entire villages, countries, where there somebody would even call it abject poverty, but it's all about mindset and association as opposed to actual numbers in the count. That's another conversation I don't want to get too deeply into right now because I want to dig deeper into this conversation about enough. So you knew exactly what your definition was of enough, and you said it very clearly and very succinctly. It's when I don't have to think about money first. Let me go backwards. What are all the criteria on your list that because they're checked, you don't think about money first? And if they were not taken care of, you do have to think about money first. Um, well, enough money, you know, in savings, in, in wealth that, um, you know, the bills could be paid for quite a while. And that has always been a a value for me, even when I was very young and didn't have a lot. I remember I was, uh, you know, moved to New York City when I was, what was I, like 23. Um, I was, uh, you know, just writing 
for a living for various places that would would have me write. You know, I had a certain amount of money that I had to spend per month for my rent and my health insurance and food and all that stuff. And I focused very quickly on making sure I had at least, you know, I think it was within, because I had some savings from before too. It's like, I needed to have at least six X, right? So six months, six months of expenses before I'd feel remotely comfortable. And even that was not really comfortable. Like it needed to be a year, two years. And so by the time I uh, met my husband, like a year, you know, a couple months after this, we got married, you know, a year after that and combined our, our resources, I had built up like two years of of living expenses or more at that point, um, you know, because I was still living pretty cheaply. It was might have been like, actually, I think about it, it might have been like three or four years worth of of living expenses. And I'm like 24 years old. So that that should give you a hint to my mindset about this, um, that I was focused on earning as much as I could. And I was focused on living cheaply. Um, because of the freedom, it would then buy me to not have to worry about it. Um, because, you know, like even if nobody would hire me for months, for a year, I'd be okay. And I'm sure that in a couple of years, I could figure out something. And my guess is that you made drastically different career choices because you had that freedom as opposed to, well, I got to pay the bills and I really don't want to write for this company. I don't believe in their philosophies or they're asking me about to write a topic I don't care about. But... I got to pay the bill. So I need a paycheck job. My guess is you could make much better career decisions and craft your path because you had the freedom to say no to projects you didn't want to work on and people you didn't want to work with. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I wound up, you know, making all great choices. (laughs) There were probably some people I worked with that were maybe not the best to work with. And they're probably projects I took on that just seemed like they would be interesting or seemed like they would, you know, pay a lot for the amount of time they would take or whatever, but it didn't have to be, you know, I didn't have to do it, right? Yeah, uh, so it's not to say that, it, that having the money automatically made you great at making choices. No. It gave you the freedom to make better choices. It makes you, you the, still have to you learn, the freedom right? to think about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and this, this digs much, much deeper into, again, this hypothesis that I have about just the the crazy amount of alignment between financial management and time management, where one of the the exercises that I take my students through, we build like extravagant flow charts and here's the story of my money and I want to automate it. So this goes here and there. Like I want financial management to be at an absolute minimum for them, but I want to very clearly have the money tell a story that it's in alignment with their, their values. But the exercise that I take them through relatively early, and I first just want to get your thoughts because I uh, value your opinions, but also how you would uh, do this exercise. My belief is that money itself has absolutely no value, especially nowadays that we're not even handing physical money back and forth. Money is literal, literally a concept that's ones and zeros where somebody says, do this thing for me. I'm going to take my ones and zeros over here and I'm going to move the ones and zeros over to you, right? Like when is the last time that you got paid for writing something in gold bars? <laughs> Probably been a while if ever, right? And if you're thinking about what's the actual value of cash, the only real value of cash is that if you need to heat your home, you can burn it and stay warm. It's all psychological. So it's all about asking the question, what does the money represent to me? And for you, what all of that extra income meant to 24 is buying myself the freedom to have years to be able to say no to the wrong things. So I guess my the follow-up to this is, do you also believe or agree with or disagree with the idea that I believe money actually has no value? 
Well, this is where we come to, I mean, you know, the constructs we come up with as human beings because they make life easier, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yes, we could all barter, but like that doesn't work very well. Like even places that have relied on barter then eventually get some sort of currency uh, because currency makes all bartering transactions easier. Like, you know, you don't necessarily want my sheep for your cows, but if we both want salt and we trade it back and forth at a certain unit, we we wind up with a much more efficient way to transfer goods between people. And, and so, I mean, because I get this with time too. People say, well, time is just a construct. I'm like, well, okay, yes, time is just a construct, but, you know, somebody has to pick up my kid at 420 today. <laughs> so it's like, it's a useful construct. Um, like the future is unknown. Yes, the future is unknown. But like the camp we want to, you know, send the kids to this summer, they open for enrollment on November 24. So maybe we should like assume that summer will happen, right? Like it, it just, you know, yes, these are all constructs that don't really have real meaning, but life is just so much easier if we all agree to subscribe to them. And so that's the whole concept of fiat money, right? Like that we all agree to subscribe to it and therefore it works. Yeah, so what I'm not arguing is let's just eradicate the concepts of time and money because that would be a bit of a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, but at least for me personally, just having the awareness of, oh, that's interesting. It never actually occurred to me that money doesn't have a real value and it is this construct and this social agreement it has allowed me to better ask very specific questions again about the value of money to me. And an example, like for me, if if there were one value that money equals is time beyond the shadow of a doubt with other students, they're like, time isn't as interesting to me, but money equals experiences. I love going on vacations or I love seeing new countries. That's not something that I value at my core. It sounds nice. It would be fun. But to me, my core value is time. Time equals money. And the more money I can amass, the more time I can buy and the more freedom I can buy. Right. So then I can ask myself the question, if I know the equation um, like you said, if, if we're talking about the amount of money in an account per month or per year to be able to pay the bills, just for the sake of simple math, if I need uh, if I need ten thousand dollars a month all in to be able to cover all expenses for my family, and I'm looking at something that I want to buy for twenty five hundred dollars in cash, it's not do I want to spend twenty five hundred dollars? It's is this thing worth a week of my time? Because I have to give a week of my time to earn this thing, and it changes the relationship between me and material goods. So I'm curious if you if you think in similar equations, given you also kind of understand the the construct of time and money. Yeah, I mean, although I think of it more as like using money to buy time, um, more like what can I do to spend more of my you know, are there things I could spend money on that would allow me to spend more of my time in enjoyable ways, right? So, um, you know, if I don't want to spend all my time vacuuming my floors, then I need to have somebody else vacuum my floors. And so that's, you know, bought me back time in, in that way, like sort of like with you with the personal chef, right? Like if, you know, you can spend money on ways to to buy you time. I guess I, I'm a pretty cheap person in general. I don't, I, I guess I don't have a whole lot of things I'm, you know, looking to buy much of the time. So I guess I don't think of it that much in terms of this is, you know, a week of my labor to purchase this mm -hmm. thing. Because, um, you know, it, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't, 
because I guess it, my labor like varies so much in what it brings in at any mm-hmm. given time with this, you know, businesses go up, businesses go down. Um, so it's harder to say whatever that amount of money is. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm buying something, it's usually because I've thought long and hard about doing it. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's less about this is a week of my time. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's, it should be everybody's lens, but my lens, at least right now, is that this thing that I want, whatever it costs, what is it equal in my labor or the time that I have to exchange for dollars? Because mm-hmm. for me, for years, it's been how do we get out of the endless cycle of I'm exchanging my time for dollars and I don't want to give my time for dollars. Therefore, that's why I've been building this business and the podcast and other multiple forms of streams of income. Um, passive forms of income, which passive income is, you know, largely a myth, but it can happen if you, <laughs> yes. you put the time in it. I've, I've always, the only form of passive income is like dividends. So Yeah, exactly. I've, I've always said that uh, passive income is when you work 20 hours a day so you can make money while you don't sleep. That's the, <laughs> that's the world of passive income. Um, and that the, the, there's a word that you said that I wasn't going to go here, but because you brought it up, I at least want to dig into it for a couple of minutes because I think language is really important. And you called yourself cheap. And I would mm-hmm. argue you're, you're probably anything but cheap. Because cheap has, at least in my interpretation, and everybody's is different, cheap has a very negative connotation. All right, I feel like cheap, frugal. <laughs> I was going to say either frugal. There's another one that I like even better is responsible. You're very okay. responsible you with your choices. Yes. But w- w- once you've assigned the, the fact that I'm cheap, there's no amount of money that's going to change that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, it, and uh, I've learned a lot about this side of the psychology from uh, my mentor, Ramit Sethi, especially on his podcast, where he'll talk to people that make seven figures in income and they're shopping the cost of blueberries. That's cheap. Right. But what you're talking about is you're making much more thoughtful, responsible choices that you might call frugal. To me, there's a world of difference between those. I shop the the cost of blueberries. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so then maybe there's a little bit of that in there. It's like I'm basically not allowed to go to the grocery store for my family anymore. (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny because based on my background and my upbringing, (laughs) and that's the thing, it's it's about (laughs) habit and it's about behavior and emotion. It's not just about numbers because the numbers do not dictate I should spend an hour researching which is the most which is the best unit cost for blueberries mm-hmm. and if we're like going back to the the coupon example and you actually broke down the math in your book if you spend 60 hours a week going through your coupons and you figure out the hourly rate of what you saved you're making minimum wage at best yeah. with the money that you save same thing with if i spend an hour figuring out what's the best unit cost of blueberries i'm losing money by doing that when i could be doing something else for that hour and that's again it's habit and it's behavior and it's emotion it's not actual numbers and spreadsheets yeah well the upside though of having we'll, we'll call it frugal uh, habits and behaviors is that sometimes you can feel completely extravagant by like small things so every time i go to the grocery store and i'm buying peppers i look like oh the green peppers are cheaper than the red peppers i should get the green peppers and then i'm like ooh I'm going to live a little and get some red peppers. <laughs> splurge. And then I feel, you know, like, like I'm, you know, I don't know, what is it? Scrooge McDuck, like rolling in the money. Uh-huh. And, yeah, so it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's the little things sometimes, but then I, you know, yeah, was, was like my, my husband prefers to go grocery shopping for us. Cause I sometimes make choices that, uh, would not make anyone happy in terms sure. of why, why do we have the store brand Cheerios? <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny because I've I use the the Scrooge McDuck swimming in money analogy a lot like everybody else does. I've now replaced that image with Scrooge McDuck swimming in red peppers. That's that's <laughs> yes, a new yes. mental image that in I've never had red, before. The red peppers. It's it just yeah, you know makes exactly. me, makes me feel rich. 
I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Uh, so having said all that, I now want to transition back to this idea of earning more because there's there are a lot of mindsets that you talk about that I think are really, really important. The one that I want to zoom into next, which with your permission, I'm going to all but blatantly steal for the course materials that I'm building, which is something right. you call the 1099 mindset. So I want you to talk about what is what does it even mean to have a W-2 mindset versus a 1099 mindset? So then we can dig deeper into the psychology of earning more. Yeah, well, for any international listeners who are like, what? <laughs> These are American tax forms. Um, and people who are W-2s are, are getting paid a regular salary from somewhere, either by the hour or they're, they're salaried, um, but it is a paycheck, right? So it is an agreed upon amount that you get um, as, as your income. And, you know, obviously some places it is variable, like you can work more or less hours. Some places you get bonuses based on performance. But, you know, generally the idea is that you have a salary. This is what you earn. The 1099 mindset is more for those of us who are earning from lots of different places. Um, you know, you have different clients, you have um, different projects you do. Your income is not set. Your income is what you bring in in terms of the various projects you do. And because I've been operating under that mindset since, I mean, literally since I was 23 years old, like I have not had a real job in ages. You, you just approach the world differently because it's not like, okay, if I need $2,000 for X, you know, which again, as we talk, I mean, I'm cheap, I put stuff away, I put the money away, like I, I, you have the money for that. But if for some reason I needed to get it for something extra, my mindset wouldn't be like, well, how could I cut this from X, Y, or Z? It'd be like, okay, well, I need to go find something I can do for $2,000. Like who out there would pay me $2,000 to do this? And you know, there are various ways you can do it. I'm I'm not writing for many places anymore, but in the past I certainly was. And so, you know, I just, you could email your editors and be like, hey, I'm available. Got anything? And, you know, if they enjoyed working with you in the past, like they may have been 
had something in mind that they just hadn't assigned that. And they're like, oh yeah, you, yes, you. <laughs> and so um, it it's not a, like you have ways to earn more if you wish to drum up more. And so I always thought that was interesting because there's like this financial question that's out there that survey people use as a way to see how financially stressed people are, which is like, if you needed to come up with $2,000, I think that basically is the question. If you needed to come up with the $2,000, you know, without like putting it on, could you do it without like putting it on your credit card? And, you know, it's getting at, do people have savings? And that's one thing. But, you know, the 1099 mindset is also like, okay, well, I may have savings, but I also, if I need to bring in $2,000 more dollars, okay, like I'll go figure out a way to do that. And you're not always optimizing for income because obviously if you could bring in $2,000 more, like why aren't you doing it all the time? It's like, well, because you know, you have other things you want to do and you have enough um, at any given moment of what you're bringing in from other things. But um, it's it's just a different mindset entirely. Yeah, and I, I like this mindset because again, it's more about the abundance rather than it is about the scarcity. So for any, and I love, by the way, that you brought up this idea of anybody that's not in the US or like, What's a W-2 and a 1099? I thank you for that because I overlooked that. That's very smart. Uh, but if I consider myself, you know, salaried versus freelance, or I consider myself, um, I've got a fixed income versus I have all the freedom in the world to grow it because I'm a 1099er, that to me is scarcity versus abundance. And I can generate it knowing that at least for me, it has to be in alignment with my values of work-life balance. And I'm not going to work 90 hours a week for people I hate just because I can consistently generate more income, but it buys me more freedom. And one of the things you said that really, really stood out to me, it's so simple. It's it's so simple, it's stupid. But I want to point out how important it is for people to think this way, that you kind of put together a list of ways that you can generate income. And to quote you, you said that a more straightforward way to boost your income is by doing whatever parts of your day job you actually like. Duh. Like, it just seems so simple. Why don't people approach it this way? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you like, yeah, if you were a, a, a teacher, you know, someplace, maybe you could tutor online somewhere else. Um, you know, if you uh, like numbers, obviously you could do bookkeeping for places. Now, obviously there's some jobs where you're not allowed to work in other side gigs, um, which, you know, hopefully if that you're in some job like that, you are getting paid enough to, uh, you know, have that restriction on you. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a way to boost your income, you can definitely start with what would I do on the side that I'd actually want to spend more time doing uh, as opposed to something I don't. But, you know, that's an intro. Can we go to this topic? Because I, I was thinking of something a few minutes ago when you were talking about like, do I want to trade my time for money? Like, do I want to work for a week to earn this thing? Mm -hmm. So this gets complicated because work is not defined as stuff you don't want to do. Right? It is for uh, a lot of people, especially is, the ones listening, but you're people. right. It's not and, defined and that way. that's one of those things that's always sort of bugged me about the like financial independence, retire early movement. Um, Cause I'm big into financial independence. I love the idea of financial independence. That's what I, you know, that's why I was building up all the money, right? Like I want to not have to do anything, but that doesn't mean I want to retire because <laughs> I love what I do. And, you know, I, I'm very lucky that I would do, I guess, what I would do for free, but I don't have to. Like, people pay me well for it, which is awesome. Um, but 
what always struck me as funny is so many of these people who are, you know, the fire evangelists, uh, they're like, I was able to retire. I built up enough money so I can retire and I'm retired. And they are hosting podcasts, writing books, teaching courses, giving talks for money, which is exactly what I do. Like, I don't consider myself retired. <laughs> I just like do it. That's like what I like to do. And people pay me for it. And they're doing the same thing. So one might say, you know, yes, you switch careers. And, and that's great. Like, I love, I love this as a career, um, but you're not retired. And, and so let's like acknowledge that work is not defined as what you don't want to do. Work can be stuff you don't want to do. But work can also be stuff you do love to do. Um, and if you are in the labor force, you are getting paid to do stuff, whether you like to do it or not. Um, so I don't know. I, I just want to put that out there. So sometimes people are like, well, are you, tr you know, you're trading your life for money. So is this thing you're bringing in worth that money? Um, and it's like, well, except I'm not trading my life for money because this is what I would do as a hobby. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. And I almost, uh, I'm a little concerned right now that you must have uh, uh, backdoor access to my notes because I literally <laughs> was going to get to the concept of rethinking retirement because uh, that is okay. such a huge aha moment in the book. Um, so I agree with everything that you said. I want to put a pin in it for a second and I do want to go deeper, but I don't want to lose this thread about um, pursuing things that you actually enjoy the abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality. And here's the reason why. Because I think that one of the, the biggest barriers that a lot of people can run into with this abundance mentality is actually much deeper and has to do with self-worth. So it's one thing, let's say that we're a salaried employee for the second, right? And I make $100,000 a year because it's simple math. There's a difference between I earn $100,000 a year and I am the kind of person that only earns $100,000 a year. So the mere thought of I'm going to pursue pursue things to earn more money and maybe it'll generate significantly more income. Oh, but I'm not that kind of person. I could never build a million dollar business, right? So this is so much deeper than just here are the practical ways to earn $2,000 or $10,000 or build a side hustle or build a business. So how do we start to dig into how our income and our finances are assigned to our own self-worth? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, I mean, some people, I think, you know, grow up with the mindset that earning more means you're worth more, which is not, you know, your net worth may be more. Your, your personal worth as, as a human being is, is not changed regardless of, of what you are, what your net worth is. Um, but then I think other people grow up with the idea that money makes you a bad person, <laughs> Right. Like that you must have done something wrong. I don't know. You stole it from somebody. Um, I got a question for this on, on one of my podcasts uh, from a lady who had built a you know reasonably successful business and she was earning a good amount of money doing consulting with uh, school systems. I think she must have been like a former teacher who was going in consulting with school systems and she was earning a good amount doing that. And of course, she felt very guilty because all the hardworking teachers she's working with are earning significantly less than she is. And I said, well, you know, I get it. I get it that that might be a mindset that you as a former teacher yourself are coming into this with. However, we're optimizing on different things. Like your business could disappear tomorrow, right? Like school systems could decide that they are no longer paying for pricey consultants. Like that's not what they're going to spend their money on. Like their, you know, state allocation of money might change entirely that you're no longer allowed to do that. Your business is gone overnight. Whereas for the most part, you know, unionized teachers in big districts after a certain number of years 
it's it's harder for them to lose their jobs overnight. There, there's a whole process to it. You know, obviously things can happen, but, you know, there's security with it. Um, and, and so maybe they are trading off income for more security. You have decided to offer a service that people are willing to pay for, but it's a little bit less certain. So, you know, I don't know. I think people just have mindsets about stuff that, you know, what, what income represents. Um, and especially since, I mean, I, I'm sure you have lots of different people of all different demographics listening to your, your stuff, but I find that for whatever reason, the majority of my listeners and readers are women. Um, and the questions of women and earning are, are very different. Um, because many young men grow up with the assumption that they will always work for pay. Um, and not only that they will, that they need to be able to support a family with whatever they are bringing in. Whereas I feel like a lot of women still do not grow up with that mindset. They certainly grow up thinking that they need to choose a profession and that they probably will be working for most of their adult life. However, many don't have that mindset of like, I should make sure that whatever I'm doing is enough both to support me and an entire family, um, you know, in the lifestyle that I would wish for that entire family. Uh, a lot of women assume there will be something else beyond them. Um, and, and for many women, that is the case. But then for many women, it isn't the case at some point or another in their lives. And so I'm always on a mission to um, make women really think seriously about what it would mean to earn a family supporting income. Um, and why they might want to think about it and why your choice shouldn't just be like, oh, well, you know, I should scale back because I want a family. It should might more be like, how can I make sure that I could support a family with my professional choices? And my guess is that, and I certainly can't speak for the female mind because I don't have the female mind and I see it from my own perspective. But I would think that the idea of your self-worth being wrapped up in your income, I would think if anything, it would be more prevalent in that sense in certain respects when you hit it's, it's uh, you're familiar with Gay Hendricks, uh, psychologist Gay Hendricks. Um, he there, there's this psychological concept that he calls the upper limit problem, where you have this image of yourself, whether it's your career, how much you earn, your relationships, where you kind of hit this glass ceiling psychologically, where all of a sudden if you surpass it, there's a whole bunch of self sabotage because you don't actually believe you deserve you've earned that thing, which is why we see so many celebrities or people that are a quote unquote overnight success just completely implode because deep down inside, they're like, I didn't actually earn this. I don't deserve all of this. So I think that that's a barrier for some people with, well, yeah, I could have this abundance mindset, but I'm I'm not sure I actually deserve it or I've never actually extravagantly spent on something. So who do I think that I could even earn the money to go on a trip to Fiji and go scuba diving? I'm not the kind of person that does that. Yeah, no, I'm certainly that that can that can happen. Um and, and, you know, it's good to examine all our financial stories, like where these come from. Because um, certainly, you know, you can grow up with solid financial things of like spending less and being frugal, but it doesn't translate into the idea of how, how do you aggressively earn more, right? Like that part didn't go into it. Or maybe you learn about putting money in the bank and, and spending less on interest rates for a mortgage or whatever, but you don't learn about investing. And, and so that's a piece of the puzzle that you you didn't have the stories around as a young person either. So, you know, we all, it's, it's worth looking at our money stories and what we grow up with. And as with any stories, you know, say, well, is, is this serving me? Do I truly believe this? 
Um, is there a way that I need to rewrite this to be more productive with my life as it exists now? Um, and, and, you know, those are useful questions to ask. Yeah. I love those questions. I'm going to make sure that we even add them to the show notes because they're so applicable to any voice or script or limiting belief. And they're especially applicable here, right? Is, is this image serving me? What one thing I've shared this with my class before. I don't think I've ever actually talked about it on the podcast. So my dad, when this happened way back in my childhood, probably never thought, oh, gee, maybe I shouldn't do this because someday my son's going to talk about it on podcast. What's a podcast? What's the internet, right? But one of the, if we're going to talk about financial stories and the image that's been burned in my brain my entire life, I don't remember exactly when it was. I was give or take 11 or 12 years old and we had to go grocery shopping. And before my left, my dad said, can you go check all the couch cushions for change? That was it. That drives so many of my financial decisions and the financial stories and the emotional attachment that I have to money was that we were in a position where it's like, if we want to get everything on the list, let's make sure we haven't left any change in the couch cushions, right? We lived in a, lived in a house that had heat, like it was, but th things were really tight for a while. And that's a script that I've never been able to completely get rid of, which again, which when I look at the cost of a gallon of milk, I'm like, how much is a gallon of milk? that story's in there, right? It's buried deep in the recesses of my emotional brain. Yep, yep. Although we probably don't have that much change in your couch cushions anymore since we're not using cash. I was going to say, what's changed? My younger listeners are, <laughs> what does he mean by like, change? Dad, I don't know. I haven't seen a quarter in ages. Yeah, <laughs> so. I'll, 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 put, I'll put a Wikipedia link in a mid-journey image of what change used to look like. How about yeah, that? We'll exactly. put that in the show I notes. I was trying to find a change where my uh, babysitter was uh, picking up my, one of my kids at a art class today and she's going to have to park the van on the street for this. I'm like, oh God, I got, do I have quarters? She's like, Laura, I'll just put it on the app. I'll put it on the app. I'm like, oh yeah, that's how people pay for parking. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't even get me started on paying for parking with QR codes and digital apps and tipping um, valets. Like I'm, I've become an old man yelling at clouds. Like I just, <laughs> I remember and I used to give him a dollar and it works, right? Like a, but <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a whole other conversation. So what, one last uh, question to dig into these limiting beliefs and scripts. Then I want to get to this idea of retirement before we wrap up, because there's a lot to be said about that. That could easily be an entire episode, but let's say that we've identified some of these scripts or these voices or these images or beliefs about money. Once we know that they're there, how do we start to overcome any of them to start making these better choices. I know that I'm not talking to, you know, like a, a bona fide psychologist, psychiatrist, and we're all trying to figure this out. But from your perspective, with your experience, what's the step between I've now identified the story, now I want to overcome it so I can begin to earn more? Yeah, no, I'm not a psychologist. So <laughs> take anything I say with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I think you can figure out what other stories also resonate with you that you can then um, try substituting that. So if you're like, well, I, I'm not worth that. That seems like a ton of money. I can't believe anyone would pay me that. Maybe it's like, I am envisioning like the life I want my family to have and me earning a significant amount of money for what I bring to the table is part of that. And so you go in with that mindset that it's not just about like, ooh, me wanting more, I'm greedy. It's that, no, no, I am supporting all these people and need them to have a good life, right? Like, so that's something that um, people can go in with. Um, and that's actually an interesting, I did some research on this at one point that women are often very good at arguing for things for other people. 
And so if you are going to go in to negotiate more money for yourself, having in your mind that you're doing it for something else is often very helpful, right? Women are incredible, like real estate agents and, uh, you know, talent agents and things like that, because getting more money for somebody else, you are all over that, (laughs) right? Um, Often it's a little bit harder for ourselves, but if you go into any sort of negotiation with the idea that, no, no, I'm the real estate agent here. Um, I'm the talent agent negotiating this for something else. You can often push a little bit harder. So, you know, figure out if there's a different story that could get at what you are going for um, that also rings true for you. And if you keep telling yourself that, uh, then then often you can you can sort of move beyond the first story. It's not that the first story isn't true for you. It's just, it's not the whole story. Yeah, I like that. And this idea of replacing it with a different story that's bigger than you and it's not just about you, I think that's a really helpful one. I want to get back to what we had, I said I was going to put a pin in earlier because it's from my perspective, knowing what I wanted to talk about today, if we don't talk about retirement, I have failed miserably to get what I wanted of this conversation because your views on retirement are so much in alignment with mine. And just like trying to define enough is hard, defining what retirement means is really hard for individuals. As far as our collective society, it's really simple. You go to school, you're in this very specific track, you're specialized, you choose a ladder, you start on the bottom, you climb the ladder to the top. While you're climbing the ladder, you're putting money in a 401k, maybe your company's matching it. Then there's magic number 57 and a half or 62 or 65, yay. You've worked for the best years of your life, but now you get to enjoy the spoils of your labor and it's so bass backwards. It just (laughs) makes no sense to me whatsoever. And the definition of retirement that I've come up with, which is very personal, is that retirement to me, like true retirement, means that I never have to work again, but I get to work on whatever I want. And the I use the word retirement fairly recently, and it kind of threw somebody off, where they said, oh, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm a retired editor. I've retired from editing, and I'm now doing this other thing. They're like, retired? What do you mean you're retired? How did you make that happen? I'm like, Oh, they were thinking like I pulled into my retirement and my pension from the editor's guild. It's like, no, 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 no. It's totally different. I've retired from this identity and from this line of work and I'm pursuing a new one. I'm not financially independent. I'm not financially retired. Like you said, I'm podcasting, I'm writing, I'm teaching, I'm coaching, I'm speaking. That's what I have to do to make a living. When I consider myself truly retired, I never have to work on anything. I never have to earn money. But there, I, I know myself, I'm a recovering workaholic, borderline, the re, like remove the word recovering. Like I'm very much a workaholic. I know I'm going to work pretty much until the point I'm not capable of it. I just want choices. I don't want to have to work. So that's my definition of retirement. How do we help other people rethink retirement? Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of, you know, a good golden years is is that you are doing things that you want to with your time. And now there's a whole different thing. I get I get letters from people who are newly retired. They're like, uh, Laura, what do I do with myself? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, there's ways to think about this. I mean, I, I could encourage people to take like a gap year when they retire. Do all the things that you didn't do because you were working full time. But my guess is for most people, if you're still within good, if you're, you have good health, within a year or two, you're like, okay, I've done those things. I'm a little tired of it. Now I need some sort of purpose. And smart retirees then have something, whatever that is. I mean, maybe they're taking care of their grandchildren. They're volunteering somewhere. Maybe they're running a little hobby business that you know they didn't have enough time to fully develop when they were working full time and now they're doing. They could be doing what we're doing. They're, they're speaking, podcasting, uh, teaching courses, uh, you know, writing books. 
but you need some sort of purpose as a human being to keep you moving forward. Uh, you, you know, leisure in and of itself is is great, but if it's not purposeful leisure, it gets old pretty quickly, right? Um, most people are not going to want to just sit around for 30 years watching TV. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, but given that that's the case, you know, that you'd spend a year or two doing the the stuff you didn't do, and then you'd want some sort of purpose, it might behoove you to figure out, well, what is that purpose now? You know, like maybe that's something that you'd like to be doing in an income producing way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the like the that. last thing that I want to do is be figuring out my life's purpose when I'm 65. Yeah, I would much you know. rather find it now or even better. I'd much rather find it 20 years ago. So to me, this idea of I'm just I'm going to work for the man, the proverbial man for 30 plus years, put in my time, build my nest egg, and then I get to start living my life. Just the concept of this alone, it's just it's such a bill of goods that we have been sold so that we can be a part of the labor force. And the thing that really clinched it for me, uh, because I'm the for me, the other thing that I value in addition to being able to buy my time is having the money to be able to buy physical experiences. Like American Ninja Warrior has led to so many different friendships and relationships and life experiences and amazing stories. One very specific example, a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago, he said, hey, I just went and I hiked Half Dome. It's basically the, the big giant rocket Yosemite that's in the, the documentary Free Solo. Right. So the the version of me 10 years ago before I learned all of this was that's going to be on the bucket list. Once I've got the money and I can take the time away, maybe when I'm 60, 65, I'm going to hike half dome. But then you think, do I really want to do that with my 65 year old body? I'd much (laughs) rather do it with this body. My 40 something body feels bad enough about that. Exactly. (laughs) It already scares my 40 something body. But why would I wait until 65 for the best years of my life when my body is going to say, I really wish you had done all these things 20, 30, 40 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely trying to put in the, the travel experiences now, but yeah. And you know, I, I, I definitely think that people should try to, you know, balance between future self and current self. We can't put it all in the future self, trusting that future self will do it. Because like you said, you don't know. Your your health may deteriorate. Um, many people like to be closer to home as they get older. And, and so then they're not going to be able to have these experiences that they, they thought they would. Um, so maybe you want to do some of them now. That doesn't mean don't put anything away for the future. There, there always has to be a balance between the two. Yeah. You want some security, some, you know, wealth building for the future. But you also don't want to only think about the future and the idea of, you know, only taking, you know, two weeks off a year and, and doing things for many hours a day that you're not happy about is, is yeah, I, I think if that's the case, then it might be worth thinking about what, what your purpose could be, what you're called to do, and if there's a way to switch careers to that. Yeah. And uh, basically, this just led to exactly where I wanted to close this, which isn't so much as a question, and you can just kind of cap this off. Uh, But this is coming right out of your book, and it's all about this kind of intersection of retirement and finding your calling. And you said, what if instead of figuring out when you'd have enough capital to retire, you spent that same energy finding a calling that you liked so much, you didn't want to stop doing it? That, to me, is the root of how you buy happiness. So there we go. I guess any I wrote other that. <laughs> did. You certainly did. Those are your words, but they were over 10 years ago. So I figured maybe I'll help you out and I'll quote them. Right. Um, but having said that, is there anything that we haven't covered about these topics, knowing that we're kind of resurrecting this from the archives? Although given that you just wrote a blog post about it this week, I find that interesting. Um, but anything else that we haven't covered that you feel is really vital for anybody that's trying to wrap their head around this idea of finding enough and the ability to actually buy happiness? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I just think that, you know, if you think of money as a tool, right, it is something you can use to achieve certain things, um, whether that's experiences you want to have, whether it's freedom, whether it's um, used in ways to bring you closer to other people, as we were talking about with the Starbucks trips, it it is best used in that regard, um, instead of having some sort of existential power in and of itself. Because uh, as you said, it's, it's just a concept. It's a very useful concept. It's just a concept. So we want to use it in a way like we would use a hammer and a wrench, right? Like, you know, they use it to build a house. And the same thing, you can use money as a tool to build the life you want. I love it. Uh, couldn't have finished it off better myself. So having said that, I want to be very conscious of your time. But before we wrap up, shameless self-promotion portion of the program. For anybody that wants to learn more about either this book, all of your other books, watch your TED Talks, connect with you, what's the one simplest place we can send people to get started? Come to my website, lauravandercam.com. You'll learn about all the money in the world. Um, you'll learn about my various other books, links to my podcasts, all that good stuff. I love it. Uh, once again, just going to reiterate where we started. The fact that you came back to publicize and talk about a book that's 10 years old means a lot. Really means a lot that you're willing oh, to take this uh, this call today. And I can't wait to sell at least four or five more books for you. Let's so. hope. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.